Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba, Managing Partner of Growth Cap. In this episode, we chat with Steve Murray, a managing partner at Revolution Growth, which is a late-stage growth fund that invests in private companies around the country. The fund has nearly $1 billion in assets under management and is an integral part to the Revolution platform founded by Steve Case and Ted Leonsis. Steve joined the Revolution growth team as a partner in 2016, bringing over 25 years of experience with high-growth technology businesses. He joined Revolution from SoftBank, where he worked for nearly 20 years with some of the most important technology companies of our generation, including Yahoo, E-Trade, GeoCities, Ziff Davis, GSI Commerce, BuzzFeed, Fitbit, Xad, Cabbage, and many others. In our conversation, you'll hear about how the tech landscape has changed over the years, what Steve looks for in a good investment opportunity, and how the Revolution platform and its Rise of the Rest initiative is having an impact across the country. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, Steve, thanks so much for, for taking the time. You know, really appreciate you, you joining us for this conversation. You know, maybe what we could do to kick off is just uh, hear a little bit uh, about your background. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so my background is I've been an investor in technology-based businesses for coming on is 25 years now, maybe. So I was I started my career um, back in the early 90s uh, with uh, Deloitte and was an auditor, and then moved from there to SoftBank uh, in the late 90s. So I joined SoftBank in 1996. Uh, stayed there for 20 years and got to sort of be a, a sit on the front row of the commercial development of the internet through things like, I think our first investment was uh, Yahoo, and it went through to GeoCities and E-Trade and a whole bunch of others. And as I was uh, leaving my time there, it was Alibaba, right? So there's lots of things in between um, and lived through the the, uh, the internet bubble bursting in the uh, late 90s and, and then um, and the growth of, uh, of lots of different forms in, uh, of internet communication and commerce and the like. So did that. And then four years ago, I joined uh, Revolution Growth as the managing partner of their growth fund. So that's where I am now. Fantastic. Um, and and we'll, we'll head into uh, Revolution. But before we, we do that, you know, I've seen a lot of interviews with, with Masa. Obviously, our, our um, prior podcast uh, was, was with Ramsey, uh, who's at SoftMac now. Um, but in those early days, back in the 90s, it really seemed like the way to pinpoint or in, in hone in on a, a great in investment opportunity was really to find out how big the opportunity could could turn into. You know, what were some of the things that kind of when you look back uh, on that experience that you think was like a key insight you gained into uh, into investing? Yeah, uh, we I had the opportunity to learn a lot of stuff over the years and continue to. So one of the things that I learned from Masa and SoftBank. Uh, was the idea around uh, betting into real big macro trends, right? So if you looked at where SoftBank did some did some of its best investments and some of its best work, if you think about at the beginning of the mid, middle to late 90s, rather, you know, there was really the 
the growth of the dial-up internet. And so there were a whole bunch of investments that we made around that trend. Um, then it was broadband internet, you know, higher speed. So it was about video and, and connectivity and other things. And then it was about the mobile internet and all the different services and activities that both enterprise and consumer that were enabled by that. So certainly from SoftBank, I, I appreciated the, the really discipline around trying to predict and study and learn from the big macro trends that are happening in the marketplace and trying to get behind those, right? And trying to not be, you know, the timing on these is always hard, but trying to be um, aggressively investing into those opportunities um, before they're completely mainstream. Right. And so that's really the, the, the art and the science of, of what we try to do when we're doing venture investing. And over the past few decades, uh, you've probably seen, you know, the, how the venture community has, has evolved and, and the number of, um, you know, various investment groups and venture capital firms popping up. Um, how is uh, revolution growth uh, different than uh, other venture capital and, and growth equity firms out there? Yeah, Revolution uh, Revolution is a is a different firm for a couple of different reasons. One is that we have uh, three different pools of capital: one for seed stage investments called uh, the Rise of the Rest Fund, one for um, earlier stage uh, investments called Revolution Ventures, and then one for growth opportunities called Revolution Growth. So. Within the Revolution platform, we have three distinct pools of capital managed by three different groups of people that can really uh, address the capital needs of an entrepreneur's journey at the appropriate time and stage of their life. So that's, that's unique. The other thing that's unique about Revolution is some of the things that we can do, which are a little bit different, uh, where we spend our time to try to help our companies. So uh, as an example of that, the firm is physically located in Washington, D.C., and we spend a lot of time and have built some internal and some um, consulting resources around regulatory and policy-related matters. So increasingly, we're finding technology-based companies, uh, particularly those that are disrupting big industries like financial services or healthcare or food uh, stores and the like, um, are running into and having to deal with proactively and reactively regulatory and policy-related matters. So that's an area that we spend a lot of time with our companies with and try to help them navigate those waters proactively. Uh, how is your personal approach to investing, how has that evolved over time and in, in seeing how the whole landscape, tech, you know, tech environment, tech ecosystem evolve? Um, how's your personal approach evolved alongside? Yeah, hopefully it's gotten a little bit smarter every year or a little bit more attuned to what's going on. Um, I guess time will be the judge of that. But um, I think in essence, um, I've I've learned to uh, focus on the handful of things on the upfront analysis of a investment opportunity um, that my experience has suggested are is the most important thing for success. So things like um, what is the quality of the founding team and particularly the founding CEO or the CEO if it's not the founder, really focus on that. Why did the person start the business? 
what is their vision for the business? Does it match with not only my vision for the business, but uh, the firm's vision for the business? If those two are incongruent, that's that's generally not a good thing. If they're in sync, that usually is helpful. Um, to understand the path that the business has been on, none of these businesses are uh, go, at least in my experience, go straight up to the into the right every every year, every day. But to understand how they've dealt with adversity along the way, have they been able to adjust the team and the strategy uh, in a way that has allowed them to be successful? That's also something I focus on. Um, and I'd say thirdly, it's really to try to understand the market into which they operate, both from a where could this be three to five years from now? Because again, we invest in companies, even at the growth stage, that where we're really not investing in the business that exists today, although of course that's what we have to make our assessment on, but what the business can become. So how is the landscape under which they're operating changing? Are are the competitive factors getting better or worse? Are the tailwinds, some of the things we talked about, I talked about earlier with some of the learnings from SoftBank around are the tailwinds in the in the industry that they're participating in are they getting stronger or are they starting to wane um, are we at the beginning of the that market cycle or the end so those are the things that um you know that, that sort of dictate how I, my personal investing style uh everyone's a little different and as i said i've 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 hopefully learned uh some things along the way but i'd say those have basically stayed the same over the years just hopefully gotten a little bit better at them and what companies uh, in your portfolio are, are you most excited about and, and why? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, we spend a lot of time with our companies, um, both on the upfront analysis and then once we get involved. So we, we, are, um, we lead our deals. Um, we actually sit on the board of all of our companies and we try to help them. So it's hard to uh, you know, I have three sons, so if somebody asked me who's my favorite <laughs> son, it would be a hard right. question to answer. So who, who are my favorites? I mean, some of the ones that I spend the most time with that right now, I, I really are enjoy, am enjoying. I, I enjoy all of them. I actually, as crazy as it might sound, I even enjoy the ones that aren't going well because I, I find I learn a lot and you learn a lot about the people there. And, and sometimes um, those, are the, those are the most um, interesting ones to work on. But the ones right now that I've, I'm finding um, really meaningful and, and, and excited about, I'd say one is uh, DraftKings, which is a company I'm going to see later today. Um, they combine sort of three things that I'm passionate about, which is sports and media and technology, all in a really interesting uh, game and, and service for customers. Uh, they operate in a very complicated regulatory change and changing regulatory environment with this, uh, the overturning of PASPA, which allows states to offer uh, legalized sports gaming in addition to their daily fantasy sports business. Um, it's a dynamic young CEO and founding team who are really um, smart and hardworking and committed and really enjoy what they're doing. And, and so that's a company that I really like working with and I really um, am excited about. I'd say another one that I get to spend a fair bit of time on is a, a very different type of company is a company called Tempest in Chicago. Tempest is using um, molecular and clinical data at scale to really bring on precision medicine. So it's a very um, data-centric business um, using massive amounts of data, um, taking advantage of trends around the uh, decreasing costs of um, sequencing patients 
as well as the decreasing costs and more availability of things like natural language processing um, capabilities and the like in order to ingest clinical uh, data and make it searchable and usable. And they're combining those two to really allow for patients, cancer patients initially, but more disease types over time to have more precise therapeutic um, uh, solutions to their their disease challenges. So that's one that's taking on a really big um, challenge. It's really it's addressing it through the use of some very, very sophisticated data, taking advantage of positive trends in the marketplace. Again, back to some of the key themes of what we try to invest against uh, against. And you know finally and not and not last on that one is that it really is using amazing, you know, is run by an amazingly talented and committed uh, founder and entrepreneur and Eric Lefkowski, who is really um, super, super smart, totally committed to the vision and the mission of the business, really b- believes that this uh, endeavor that he has taken on, and he's created multiple successful companies already, that this one is really going to be do wonderful things for the world. So that one is really one we're really proud of at Revolution, and I'm really excited about spending time with. I'd say the 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 third one that comes to mind is one that's sort of in the news for not great reasons all the time these days, which is a company called Convene. So Convene is a is run by again a uh, a first time uh, founder and entrepreneur who's built a really great business around hospitality in the uh, commercial real estate uh, sector. They do meeting space and uh, flexible office space. And when you say flexible office space these these days, which is why I mentioned they've been in the news lately, mm-hmm. um, you sort of are getting painted with the WeWork brush, right? So it's really interesting to see this business that has really operated very, very disciplined in a disciplined fashion, has um, embraced change, has driven um, great results at its unit level and has happy customers and is growing really fast and 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 really is a, a an interesting and, and great company to work with with a great management team. It's interesting to see how they're uh, dealing with the challenge that got created for them that they really had nothing to do with, which is all the issues around WeWork and the perceptions now that are being painted across any of the players in that that industry. So it's great to see uh, see Ryan Simonetti, who's the CEO, and his team rallying around this as an opportunity. Uh, the, there's, again, with the back to trends, there's no doubt that there'll be a much higher percentage of commercial real estate in the years to come that will be operated under a flexible work environment. Um, there's no question that that is a uh, that is a uh, something that enterprises really um, value and appreciate and want to have. There's no question that the products that uh, folks like Convene are creating are really useful and valuable products. And Convene now looks at this as a short-term blip because every, uh, the world has decided that for the time being, these are these are not um, as desirable models as they were six months ago for whatever reason. But Convene really now looks at this as an opportunity to perhaps uh, grow faster, create, uh, pick up some market share while remaining disciplined, knowing that perhaps for the near term, uh, the the equity and, and debt markets for them may be challenging because of things outside of their control. So 
again, that's an interesting one to work to work with. One I think has great uh, future and potential, and and one that you know I get to spend a lot of time with. Yeah, this this whole area of how people uh, work today, and how companies set up their work environments between you know fixed you know one location and commuting versus remote versus flexible, I think is you know very you know top of mind, especially for both uh, leaders of big companies as well as uh, you know emerging growth companies. But for, for it sounds like you know from what uh, you're seeing uh, there is this kind of positive trend towards, you know, more flexible workspaces. Do, I mean, do you see that growing dramatically in the years to come? Yeah, the, every study that I've seen says that right now that number is low single digits, sort of three, four, five percent maybe of commercial real estate is operated under that um, kind of flexible working arrangement and the you know, in the out years, call it five to 10 years from now, the estimates I've seen is somewhere between, you know, high teens and mid-20s. So I think a huge opportunity for growth. It makes total sense for companies. I think many companies will continue to want to have sort of own and operate, if you will, their HQ. Uh, But as more companies are are thinking about, do they really want a big, a team within their own organization managing facilities and leases and buying equipment and keeping the internet running for uh, some of the satellite-like offices or secondary facilities where maybe they need 20 people this year and that might grow to 30 next year. You know, the notion of particularly, think about in the world that we live in now, uh, companies signing 10-year leases for a fixed amount of space when you really don't know what your workforce is going to be, where they're going to be, how often they're going to be in the office, how much space they need, it really uh, doesn't make any sense. And I think solutions like the one Convene provides are, are much more amenable to not just startups, which is, I think, the area that we work really had succeeded well in, but really enterprises, which is really where Convene has always focused. You know, you, you'd mentioned that uh, Ryan was a first-time founder, and I, you know, it's it's sometimes more difficult to gauge uh, probability of, of success with 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 new founders. Although that's you know uh, the predominant type of founder when when you're in the venture world. But you know, what what's you know, I guess, what are some of the key traits that you think backable first-time founders have? Well, they have a they they all have a the, the successful ones, and I guess sometimes even the unsuccessful ones. But you really look for what whether they have a a firm point of view, right? Do they their point of view about how they want to develop the organization? Have they developed the organization? Um, have they been able to attract and retain quality people on their executive team, other than maybe the founders? That is sometimes, particularly for us that are looking at the growth stage businesses, that's a real test um, because oftentimes the folks that, as I say, the folks that got you there are not the folks that are going to get you to where you need to be. They might have been the right team to get you from zero to 10 or from 10 to 20, but they very well may not be the right team. That doesn't mean they have to go away, but there needs to be the team needs to be augmented and added to in order to get to 50 or 100 or 200 million dollars of revenue. So a big part of it is the point of view on the market, the point of view on the team, their ability to develop the team um, and, and how they've been able to plan. That's the other thing 
for me in particular, I focus a lot on, which is um, it's very hard, particularly in the growth stage, to uh, be the CEO and be effective and be successful unless you can adequately plan. And, and therefore, how are you getting information? How have you set up the discipline within the organization to encourage accurate planning? Because the, the risks of, of poor planning um, go up over time because you're deploying bigger resources across the organization with less immediate knowledge of exactly what's happening as it might have been when, when the company was much smaller. So those are the things that I really like to focus on, frankly, whether it's a uh, first-time CEO or a multi-time CEO, but it's really those, those things where I spend a lot of time on the front end. You know, how's the overall, the, the macro picture uh, changed and uh, and do you have any insights on on kind of where you think kind of capital for private companies how is it moving uh, where is it moving towards or is it just more of a, a gradual uh, evolution yeah no I mean there's no question that there's a few I think undeniable facts one is that the amount of time that companies are staying private has extended right so Therefore, by definition, the amount of money that they're raising as private companies has increased. So that has created um, opportunities at the later end of a what used to be a private company's life, which is now maybe the middle of their company's life. So what we find is that the definition, and I'm sure you have this with other folks that you've talked to, the definition of what is a growth stage company means very different things to very, very different people, entrepreneurs, investors, LPs, and everybody else. So we look at a growth stage company as one that has product market fit, that maybe has 20 or $30 million of revenue that is growing fast, where the entrepreneurs and the management team and the, and the investors are all excited about the next phase of growth and want to put some fuel on the fire to to grow even faster. That's what we determine. That's what we plot out uh, and where we participate. But there's obviously two, sometimes three rounds later than that. Oftentimes these days, those companies may still be private companies, and those are where SoftBank is putting in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and and crossover firms that are more well known as mutual funds, things like Fidelity and Wellington and T Rowe Price might be uh, investing. And if you think about it versus many several years ago or many years ago where those companies would have been public companies, and it, it feels on some level appropriate for those types of firms with those types of capital bases to, investing in, to invest in that stage, um, where folks like us that are private equity investors and really venture growth investors need to remain disciplined is that we need to make sure that we're investing in companies that still have plenty of growth left in them uh, and that really are hitting the knee of their, uh, their curve on growth uh, and that they're not too far up the, the scale, if you will, where the, what is left in terms of a return uh, potential um, is not what we've set out to do, right? So we have to make, we have to be careful that we're, making sure we don't go too early, but frankly, also too late because there's still a lot of private investment dollars that get invested in these businesses well past where we would call it the, for us, the right entry point. The fact that there's, you know, come new funds popping up, you know, just more capital, it's seemingly more capital available. 
there you don't feel that there's uh, necessarily an oversupply of of capital for the the number of you know private company opportunities out there yeah i don't you know i've i've heard that a lot and i've read that a lot i can tell you about you know what we see every day which is and this has been consistent since um i've been doing this which is the best opportunities seem to always be competitive with mm-hmm. a handful of folks um and you know, companies that are really struggling that don't seem to have direction, you know, seem to eventually go away. Now, there's probably, I would say, the there's clearly more capital chasing after some of these deals than there used to be, which probably has led to, certainly in many instances, prices uh, beyond what we would we would pay. So I would say that's probably the most common reason for us to walk away from an opportunity that we otherwise like is price. And that's more common than it was years ago, and that probably has to do with the the number of funds out there chasing those opportunities. But it's always been a competitive environment. Great entrepreneurs always have choices as to who they want to work with. I think the smartest the smartest ones always um, choose their lead and their next round based on a balance of things, including price and terms, but it's also other things. What else can the company, what can they do for the company? Will they be good board members? Will they stay with the company through thick and thin? What is the portfolio that they have put together? And can those portfolio companies be helpful to theirs? There's a lot of different factors that go into it, but there's no question that there's been some price appreciation in a number of the best opportunities or a number of what looked like the best opportunities where, you know, and we saw this a little bit in the late nineties where, you know, companies in some instances are being priced in the private round as if they're going to have nearly perfect execution for the next two years, which is very hard. You know, as we kind of wind down the conversation here, maybe one thing we could expand on that you had mentioned earlier is, the the rise of the rest fund it seems like that's you know making waves it's you know certainly received some uh, attention out in the media but it, and it sounds like it's it's you know set up to have some tremendous impact so we'd we'll love to hear a little bit more about uh, the rise of the rest philosophy sure so so the rise of the rest uh, is a is a fund but it's also a platform um, you know there's a there's a there's well documented bus tours that. Steve Case has been on for a number of years, and they do several of them a year and go to a bunch of cities and really rally both public and private um, constituents in the various cities and try to inspire them to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem within their communities and the benefits thereof. So the the basis of Rise of the Rest is the notion that um, entrepreneurial instincts and ideas and people are reasonably evenly distributed, but capital is not, right? So most of the capital has been invested in venture stage businesses in Northern California, uh, some in New York and some in Boston, but those three places get a lot of the attention and money. And the rise of the rest thesis is that that should not be where 70 or 80 percent uh that's not where 70 or 80 percent of the good ideas come from there's no question there's great ideas and great schools and great reasons for those areas to be successful but there's also lots of other places across the country where there can and should and frankly needs to be 
um, technology-based entrepreneurship and that there's great benefits to those communities to make that happen. So that, the, the real, I think, driving force behind the rise of the rest is, is to be the catalyst for that change. And some of that change has happened and is happening in places like Nashville and Columbus and the like. Some of it, frankly, has already happened in places like Chicago and Atlanta and others where, you know, they now have thriving ecosystems and, and, and incubators and, and accelerator programs and investors that, that go there regularly and some that are now based there and, and bigger companies and strategic companies that think about those areas as areas that they need to pay attention to. So, so that's really what Rise of the Rest is all about and the mission that they're on. That's fantastic. Um, and just uh, out of personal curiosity, I noticed you were a competitive swimmer, you know, in your in your younger days. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, for those in the audience that that uh, that have kids, I actually have this conversation with with some of my friends about the how sports can really impact kids in particular and, and, and you know, even into the uh, older years, obviously, college and, and even post college. But how has uh, how did swimming kind of impact you overall i'm sure it's played a role in some way yeah we could do a, a, a another separate 45 minute conversation about um about kids and sports and and the benefits and frankly some of the the uh the, the pitfalls of that i have three teenage sons one who's in college and two that are in high school and they're all very a active athletically uh, and I've had the opportunity to coach some of their teams as they've grown up. Um, but for me, sports was a big part of my life growing up. I think the competitive side of sports is great. I think the fact that sports is sort of a meritocracy was great. You know, you don't, you don't get to win the race uh, because you grew up on one side of the tracks or the other. You get to win the race because you either have talent or you have hard work or it's usually some combination combination of both. I think swimming in particular, um, that was one of the sports that I did. It happened to be the one that I did in college. But swimming is it, it tends to be a little bit more um, individual uh, driven, although there were certainly some team aspects to it. My favorite part of swimming was always being in the relays. Um, my The other sports that I did, uh, basketball and, and soccer, uh, were much more team driven. My kids tend to, my kids play ice hockey and lacrosse. And they're actually sailors, but the the um, the ice hockey in, in particular, which is a team a team sport that I really enjoy. Everybody on the team has to contribute. You know, it's not just the five kids that play the first that start out that have to contribute for the team to win. Every the first line, second line, and the third line all have to play, and they all have to play their role, and they all have to contribute and work hard and know know what they need to be accomplished from them. So. I, I think there's great value to be um, driven from sports. It's been a big part of my life. I, I, I continue to like sports and watch a lot of sports. And and uh, and, and as I said, um, really been able to be blessed, uh, participate, you know, as a coach a little bit with uh, with my kids as well. So sports has been a big part of my life, and I really enjoy them. Great. Well, Steve, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I know our audience will find this uh, very insightful. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate I appreciate you doing it.